Let me pray, and we'll get started. God, we are grateful uh, to you for yet another day, another morning, another Sunday, to be with your people, to um, worship you together, and um, just to enjoy the life that you've given. God, we pray that we would uh, find our greatest satisfaction in knowing you, and the fact that you uh, know us in a redeeming and saving way, and uh, that we are your children. God, we pray for those among us uh, who we are happy to have visit us uh, on Sundays who some may not know you. We pray they would come to know you even today and um, find the joy that comes from uh, uniting to Christ in saving faith. We pray uh, for help as we look at your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in Leviticus 27. This is our last uh, session in Leviticus, so it's kind of bittersweet, right? Um, As we begin, maybe I'll let you guys, uh, does anyone have any questions uh, before we jump in? So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Leviticus 27, and then we're going to kind of big picture summary of Leviticus and and how it fits in the Bible. But before we do that, um, give you an opportunity, is there any questions or, or things that stood out to you, things that were new, things you learned, things you were reminded of? Um, anyone want to share anything before we jump in? No questions. Wow. It was all explained that well, huh? I like the way you guys emphasize character of God. Yeah. And then the taking all these this minutia yeah. detail and kind of grouping it so that you know, we could understand that that was yeah. the first time I've ever really done that. Of course, it's the first time I've ever studied this in Sunday school. Sure. Yeah. Great. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Leviticus is not often taught, right? And so um, it is helpful when you kind of take a big picture approach to it and see how, see how the, the details fit in the bigger picture. Yeah, that's good. Yeah? It was a good reminder to me when we studied Nadab and Abihu um, to just have a proper fear of God. I think sometimes we get yeah. too cozy or something. Yeah, yeah. You have a, have a proper fear of God. I think that is a helpful um, thing to take away, right? Because we... Um, I think we do in our in our um, kind of individualistic high view of self culture, right? That the, that's the air we breathe, and it can be easy to think um, when you leave church. Well, what did I get out of church today? Instead of, I went to worship the living God and I survived, right? And uh, and not only did I survive, like He wanted me to draw near, He invited me to draw near, uh, and we were able to worship Him and uh, and know something of the life that comes through Christ. So yeah, I think you're right. It's a humbling, humbling effect Leviticus has on us. Anything else? Other comments, questions? All right. Well, good. So today the plan is to look at Leviticus 27 and learn about uh, vows that would be uh, a certain type of offering to dedicate things to God and then review the book as a whole and locate it in its uh, place within the storyline of the Bible because we recognize the Bible is, in fact, one overarching narrative of what God is doing to bring about redemption, right? It doesn't tell us everything that God has done uh, in every single corner of the world or the universe, right? I mean, there's things happening under the sea that the Bible doesn't tell us every detail about, right? Right now, there's probably something in the Marianas Trench um, swimming around to the glory of God, right? And the Bible doesn't tell you about all those details. It just tells you made all the sea creatures, and that's, that's really what we need to know when we talk about redemption. 
Um, but um, <clears throat> we're going to look and see, and, and what the, the thing that's going to unite both of those things, so, so Leviticus 27 and then just the how does it fit in the Bible, is essentially the question, how does this fit? Why is this here? That's kind of the question we're asking in both those things. Why is Leviticus 27 here? How does it fit? And then, you know, um, why is Leviticus in the Bible? And why, why is it here? What does it do for us? How, why does God have it here? So let's talk Leviticus 27 first. Uh, what happened in Leviticus 26? Does anyone remember? Just basic. I don't need every detail. What's kind of the big picture of Leviticus 26? Blessings and curses. That's right. So we have blessings and curses. Um, and we have, uh, essentially, we, we kind of have a... Um, description of a uh, kind of a new garden of Eden to some degree, right? If, uh, if the people will walk in the, the Lord's ways, they will draw near to him, he will bless them. And you, you see a lot of the blessings described are, are basically reversing a lot of the curse and returning to pre-curse type life uh, to some degree. Not, not, not we, we realize there's still going to be sin because they still have to make sacrifices and things like that. But there, there's, uh, there's just this climactic movement towards and God saying, and I'll be with you. Right, God, kind of like God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in in Genesis two. Um, we we see uh, fruitfulness. He talks about you know that you're going to be fruitful. You'll be safe. I mean, all these things that are very garden type pictures, right? And that's really what the storyline is saying. How do we get back to this state of being in a right relationship with God, enjoying His favor, His blessings? relating to him. There's also warnings though. Doug pointed that out to us, right? There's a lot of warnings of um, essentially uh, if you reject these things, right? You can, if you say, hey, we're going to keep rebelling. We don't need you, God. Take a hike. Um, what's going to happen is essentially hell on earth. I and mean, when you read it, it is an ongoing pushing forward of the curse in Leviticus uh, 26. So there, there's warnings, and, and okay, is it just a warning, though, or is what, what else another word we could use to describe those curses in Leviticus 26? Is it just warning? I'm, this is kind of a guess what I'm thinking, but... Chastisement. Chastisement, yeah, discipline. And in fact, it's discipline that is, to some degree, prophesied. I mean, Moses is, is basically, he basically explains what is going to happen. And as you keep reading through the storyline, there's more warnings about, you guys are going to go astray. Don't go astray, but you're going to go astray. And then they choose to go astray. And then guess what happens? God is faithful to his word, right? He brings about the discipline he promised. So that's what we have having Leviticus 26. So I point that out just to say uh, Leviticus 26, you know, um, if I was writing and, I, and not under the inspiration of the spirit, you could see how you, you get at the end of Leviticus 26 and you think, great, we're done. That's a wrap. But it's not. We then have Leviticus 27, which is about vow offerings, and it's a bunch of like, kind of like Leviticus 1 through 7, it's a bunch of rules about a particular type of offering. Uh, or or it's, it's, it's kind of a multifaceted offering, so there's a bunch of pieces to it. But, um, so why, does it, why is it here? Well, number one, the Spirit of God put it here, okay? So, I mean, you know, we have a very um, clear understanding that the Bible is the Word of God and that the Spirit of God inspires the Word of God. In fact, we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. We're going to be doing a series on Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and one of those sessions will be on inspiration and illumination. So that's coming in, the, in a few weeks. But uh, that really is a sufficient answer that the Spirit put it here, right? But it's not completely random either. So the Spirit has a reason for putting it here, and I think in this case we can somewhat discern that. If you look at your handout, you'll see the uh, structure of Leviticus following this, this kind of um, working from the outside in, right? So you have this parallel thing going on. So 
Leviticus 16 we talked about is really the center of the book of Leviticus. In fact, it's more than the center of the book of Leviticus. It's the center of what? Does anyone remember from our session on Leviticus 16? The center of the Pentateuch. I think I heard somebody say that. If not, now you know, right? It's the center of the Pentateuch because Leviticus is the central book, right? There's five books and it's the middle book of the Pentateuch. Um, so we have Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement is the center of the um, Pentateuch and Leviticus. If you work your way out from that, uh, chapter 16, you see on both sides of it, you have similar things going on. You have issues related to clean and unclean in daily life, and you have issues of holy and profane in daily life. If you work out both directions again, you have the institution of the priesthood in 8 through 10. In 21 through 22, you have legislation of the priesthood. If you work your way back to the beginning, you have sacrifices and how we approach God. And then the end, you have sa uh, sacred time and sacrifices and walking with God. So the reason this is here is because it completes, it helps complete the structure of the book. I think that's what's going on. Now you still could have ended at chapter 26 because that still fits within that section of kind of... Um, sacrificial, like walking with God, you know, type stuff. So Leviticus 27 is, is here, I think because it really very clearly mirrors chapters 1 through 7. It's dealing specifically with sacrifices of a certain type. And the reason I think it's the last one to be dealt with is because it's talking about vow offerings. And these vow offerings would have been voluntary offerings to the Lord that essentially says, everything I have belongs to you. I'm showing that by devoting this over to you, God. So, um, if the goal of Leviticus is walking with God, what better illustrates that than vow offerings? Where the people are saying, yeah, because remember, one of the things they're saying through sacrifice is we believe that the one true God is among us. He is in the tabernacle. We believe he's there among us in a special blessing way. That's why we do all these costly sacrifices. It was not cheap to sacrifice cows and goats and all these other things, right? It, it, was, it was dangerous to sacrifice the first fruits of your harvest if there's not really a God in that tabernacle who told you to do that. That's just, it's silly. You're going to be hungry if there's not a God who's going to provide for you, right? Um, so the vow offering is, is voluntary, and so it's very much saying, God, I believe, it's not just like I'm going through the outward rote, this is what's required. It is, I want to go above and beyond that because everything, I believe you're there and everything I have belongs to you. So I, I think that's probably why we have this here. Um, that's, that's the way I understand it anyway. So we have these vows, these voluntary gifts that are being given, and that's how we're going to end it. And I think it shows that uh, it's, a it's a sacrifice that shows the heartbeat of the person. It's kind of like the barometer of the heart. Like sometimes we talk about how giving is a barometer of the heart, right? You can give for all the wrong reasons, but there is a sense in which when you give, it does show something about your heart. Do I really value and treasure God and believe he is who he is, or do I not, Right? It's, it's, it shows something of what's going on in my heart. So I think that's kind of how this chapter is functioning. So let's look at Leviticus 27. Uh, look at verses 1 through the beginning of 2, and then we'll stop for a second. Uh, the way we're going to cover this, by the way, we're not going to read through every single verse in here, but we're going to look at um, <clears throat> kind of the big picture of what's going on. So verses 1 through 2, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord. Okay, so that sets, that's, that's what we're talking about in this whole chapter, is special vows. What is a vow? 
Well, a vow is a pledge or a commitment or a promise. You might think of it as a, uh, a wedding, the way God designed weddings to work, right? I mean, I realize nowadays we've gone way off the rocker on what that looks like. I mean, every culture has had their way of um, devaluing wedding vows. Um, we're, we're no different in our culture. But wedding vows ought to be a place where we're making promises, right? Unbreakable promises to another person before the eyes of God and before witnesses, and so this is a vow that we are making a, a promise, an unalterable, should be unalterable promise to God. Um, and so these offerings could be a gift of thank, thankfulness to God. Uh, so, so God blesses the individual and out of thankfulness, they make a vow to God. I promise that they will give X, Y, and Z in thankfulness to the Lord. Um, it could be an appeal for deliverance by God. So a, um, hey, I'm in, I'm in a tough spot, uh, Lord, you know, Strengthen me, help me, and I will, this is the vow I'm making. I will, I will sacrifice X, Y, and Z. So one example, um, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. In uh, Genesis 20, hmm, I don't know if it's 20 or 28. I might have got it wrong. Let me go double check here. So it's either, it's either Genesis 20 or Genesis 28. Let's get this right. Yeah, so it's, it's actually uh, 28. So in my notes, I wrote 20. What did I put in yours? Did I give you the right passage? Okay, good. <clears throat> so, uh, 28, verses 20 through 22. Then Jacob, let, let me just point out here, by the way, um, this is not necessarily saying Jacob is full of faith in this passage. I, I do think, um, uh, yeah, Jacob is a shady guy, right? I mean, like every, you guys realize this. I mean, every hero in the Bible except for Jesus is shady. Jacob is like really shady, but the point is, God works in and through these, these individuals to show that salvation is going to belong to the Lord. Like, we're not going to claim that we just cleaned ourselves up and we, you know, we're great people. That's why the Lord saved us. Um, sinners are the people that are candidates to be saved, right? Sinners that recognize it and that call out to the Lord. So, um, so I'm not necessarily saying this is a, a great example of, of faith, but there is, there is um, infant faith, at least here, where Jacob makes a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in, the, in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be, uh, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So that's his vow. The point is, I just want to make an example of this. This is before Leviticus though. So this is not really exactly like what we're seeing in Leviticus. My point is this is probably the first instance you see a vow offering of some sort. So, so Jacob is living pre-Mosaic covenant, right? The law has not been given yet, but he, he's one of those early patriarchs, and you see him making a vow offering. Uh, you remember he's been on the run from his brother, right? Because, again, he's a very shady guy, um, but the Lord works through all that. And, and so he's scared to face his brother because he knows that um, last he saw him, his brother wanted to kill him, right? Um, so, anyway, talk about sibling rivalry. Uh, Psalm 56, verse 12. This is after the Mosaic Law has been given. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. So, vows can be thankfulness. Uh, and here's, here's the reason, verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So, these vow offerings are not just uh, short-sighted in terms of, um, God, thank you for my life. I'm going to keep living for myself. This is not like the... Um, unbelievers foxhole prayer, right? You know, Lord, get me out of this and I'll give you whatever. This is, this is coming out of a true heart of faith. And then what is he saying? Uh, this thank offering is a sign that I want to keep living for you. It's not just like a payment so that I, you can get off my back and I'll keep living how I want to live. That's not, that's not true faith, right? The Israelites are called to show true faith in these thank, um, 
vow offerings. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 14. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vow offerings to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Okay, so vow offerings, that we, we know what they are generally. Uh, let me point out too, by the way, so um, it doesn't go into depth about what all these things are for. In fact, in this passage, it doesn't really even talk about them being for thanksgiving. It doesn't talk about them being for prayers of deliverance or anything like that. Um, why is that? Well, it's a lot like Leviticus 1 through 7. If you remember, we used the illustration of like, um, it's like a, a baseball game being broadcast 3,000 years into the future. And let's say, you know, you're living 3,000 years down the road from now, and maybe there's still baseball, probably, let's say there's not. Um, some of you are very disappointed by that, I'm sorry, but I'm okay with that. So let's say there's not baseball 3,000 years into the future, okay? And uh, you're, you're listening to this broadcast uh, that, that was from, the, the, the announcer's not stopping to explain every term and everything he uses, right? When he says it's a foul ball, he's not going to stop and explain it. Why? Because the original audience knew what a foul ball was. And if he did that, it would become quite cumbersome, right? The Israelites know what's going on. They're, they're already seeing this put into practice. The priests have already given them some instruction. Um, it's, just, it's just fitting what's happening. So we're not given all the details here, but that doesn't mean we can't put it together. That's why we just looked at some other passages. You see it in other places where you see them living this thing out. Here, he's just giving legislation about how this is going to work, okay? So he's not going to go into all the detail about why are you doing a vow offering? They know why they're doing vow offerings, okay? Anyway, so you might have been confused. If not, maybe you are now. Okay, Leviticus 27, verse 2. Uh, what sort of things could be de dedicated to the Lord? Uh, verse 2, people. If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons. So, uh, vow offering could be made in relation to people. This is not necessarily that they're giving the people over because it immediately goes into talking about you pay a certain sum of money. Uh, in other words, you don't give the person and then just leave them there. Although we see that happen with uh, Hannah, interestingly enough, with Samuel, right? Um, but that was, that was not the norm, I don't think. Um, because most people aren't going to be able to serve in the tabernacle anyway. You can't, like, vow yourself to, like, be a servant in the tabernacle. There's not much they're going to let you do. You're not a Levite, right? Um, so, and th so immediately what you would do is you're showing some sort of thankfulness to God, let's say, for sparing your life or something, or you just want to show, God, everything I have belongs to you. And so you make this vow offering of yourself. I vow myself to you. What that means is based on your age and, and gender and the value that you would have in terms of service, if you were to work in the tabernacle, what you would be allowed to do, they valued it based on the amount of work you could do. So this is not saying older people or younger people are less valuable or whatever. It's, it's, it's based on where you're at and what sort of service could be rendered in a tabernacle because what you're going to do is kind of pay off that debt, so to speak, of yourself. Okay, does that make sense? So, so when it talks about age and gender stuff, this is not God saying, and these people are more valuable than these people. The whole point is what sort of service would be rendered and that values the amount that you would pay for that individual. Okay? Um, so it goes through the list. It, it tells you what the values are. Um, so these are large amounts of money. According to Wenham, uh, he, would, he said that a shekel a would be about a month's worth of wages for a normal laborer. So when you talk about the highest valuation being 50 shekels, that's a lot of money um, that, that you would pay in this. It is interesting, though, if you look down at verse 8, look at verse 8. <clears throat> and if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. So again, we see God making um, provision for the poor among the people of Israel. They may want to offer themselves too out of a sign of thanksgiving and joy to the Lord, but they're thinking, I can't afford whatever, 50 shekels 
they could still do it and the priest would work with them to come up with the value that would work so that they could still demonstrate and give sacrificially from their own heart. They're not, they're not kept from being able to sacrificially give in this system, okay? Um, so I thought that was, that was interesting. That, you know, so this kind of reminds me in the New Testament of Romans 12.1, right? We are to be living sacrifices. This, that's kind of the New Testament equivalent, I think, to what's going on with this um, vow offering related to persons. There's, we are living sacrifices to the Lord. Uh, our whole lives belong to him as Christians, um, animals is the next thing, verses 9 through 13. Look at verse 9. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. That means it's set apart to God. Houses, chapter 27, verse 14 through 15. Look at verse 14. When a man uh, dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. So we kind of have what we're having here is kind of gift in kind. You know what a gift in kind is? Someone can give something rather than money. They can give a thing. Um, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, <clears throat> this likely, by the way, refers to houses in a city. And um, the reason we say that is because you'll remember the year of Jubilee. Do you guys anyone remember when we talked about that several sessions ago? Um, and so to get into that, let's look at the next thing, because the next thing you can give is property. Does anyone notice any size differential here between this paragraph and the ones that went before it? When you start talking about property, it gets longer. The reason is it becomes a lot more complex because we have this year of Jubilee thing. Um, now, why is property so important? In other words, okay, so let me just back up. It, it becomes um, imperative that if you give property, you need to be able to redeem it to buy it back at some point. So you're offering maybe, you can use this land, I'm giving it to you, but in the year of Jubilee, I have to buy it back for whatever the value is minus the amount of time you've had to work the land. Okay? I think it says, does it talk about, how, yeah, let me, let me just read this for you. Verse 16 through 18. If a man dedicates to the Lord uh, part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. So how are you going to value it? Again, the question is, what productive use comes out of it? That's the value, right? Well, it's the amount of uh, produce it's going to make, right? It's based on the amount of seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. In other words, year one after the Jubilee, it's full value. That's, that's how much that land is worth because it has a full 49 years to produce stuff. That's the valuation. Do you understand that? That makes sense? Okay. Uh, but if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. Okay, so we don't need to get into all that. We're not, we're not doing an ancient Near East accounting here. That's not the point. The point, though, is why, is that, why do they need to be able to redeem their land? Why is land so important? Because part of the promises is land. You remember that? I'm going to give you a place. Because the whole storyline is God's people and God's place under God's rule. And we, and we too are looking forward to that, aren't we? Not, not necessarily a, the chunk of land that's been promised to Israel here, right? But a new heavens and a new earth where we'll be in God's presence, in God's place, enjoying God's blessing rule forever. That's the whole storyline of the Bible, essentially. So we're going there. Um, and here they, but here, the physical land is, is important for their experience of the blessing of God. If they don't have physical land, they're under the curse, not the blessing. And each individual clan and, and tribe gets a certain amount of land. They're each going to have land. And so you, if, if you lose that land, you're losing something of your place among the people of God. So God's saying, we're not gonna, it's not going to be that way. 
they're, they're, we're going to have to get the land back to each original tribe. That doesn't mean there's going to be, it recognizes you may have to sell the land. Or in this case, you may want to vow some of your land because you don't need it all right now. And you want to glorify God by saying, I, I vow this to the Lord, right? But there's got to be a way that it's going to revert. It's going to come back. And so that's what's going on there. And then practically speaking, if they don't have land in an agricultural community, you're not going to do very well. You got to have land to eat, right? Okay, um... One more section uh, thing that we need to address here in this section. In this section, um, the Bible gets human nature uh, right. Is that surprising to you? Um, it is interesting, and this is a side note. Um, every other worldview gets human nature wrong, and there are consequences to bad ideas, to wrong ideas. And you're seeing it all over the place right now in our culture. I mean, even, th I, I mean, think about it in terms of, um, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go into all that, but just. Anytime worldviews get displayed everywhere, right? In everyday life, in the way you handle your personal life, in the way a community addresses problems, everything from poverty to whatever, in the way we do politics, everything is the way you view the world and, and what you think matters. There, there is a religious element to all of this. And if you get human nature wrong, you will always get the problem wrong and you will always get the solutions wrong. Now, by God's common grace, sometimes we get bits and pieces of that right, even apart from God. But, I mean, I mean, we've been at war with poverty since the beginning of the fall. And we haven't eradicated it, right? And part of that is because we don't get human nature right. Now, there's also just the sense that we live in a fallen, cursed world. And, and we should grieve over that and we seek to alleviate poverty and all that. I'm not, so anyway. But the point is, the Bible gets it right. Um, it gets human nature right. And, uh, and it does it here because it knows, but God knows, uh, there, will, there will be a temptation among some of us to take our vow back. There, there will be times where we will make hasty vows and then we're going to regret it and we're going to want to change it. And so the Bible addresses that in this section as well because it knows, it knows the, that our hearts are not always um, wise and we're not always pure. So, a couple situations. Situation number one, vowers remorse. You have heard of buyer's remorse? This is like buyer's remorse, right? You make a vow and you regret it. Um, <clears throat> someone might make a vow in a moment of desperation and once being delivered, be tempted to go back on that promise. Um, but that would show that they're not worshiping God rightly. So we have some laws set up to help control these sinful inclinations. Uh, and five times in this section, verses 13, 15, 19, 27, and, 20, and 31, we have a phrase that is repeated and it is, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. You can go back on your vow on some of these things, but if you want to buy back whatever the thing is, you have to add one-fifth to the value of that thing. So it recognizes two things. Number one, you might have really made a bad decision and you might need to, to back out. Like you might actually need that thing. But it's, but you, it's not just a wishy-washy back and forth, how are you feeling today? You know, now you looked good in front of everyone when you made a vow and you're going to take it back in private and no one's... No, there's a costliness to it. Um, so when this is, I mean, application to us, we ought to be thoughtful when we relate to God as well, right? We shouldn't be rash in making vows to the Lord. We're, we're not under the old covenant, but we still might vow certain things to the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 25, it is a snare to say rashly, it is holy. That means it's set apart to God. And to reflect only after making vows. When did you reflect? Before making vows, not after, right? Think, of, think before you act. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 through 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that, than that you should vow and not pay it. So, we need to be thoughtful about this. Now, 
I also know human nature. Let me say one more thing. The temptation then is to become stingy. I'm never going to vow anything, right? Because I don't have to go back on it later. Um, we need to check our motives, right? Because this, this is not a call to be stingy. The whole point of this section is to be generous and honor the Lord with our generosity. Um, but um, we, we can go to the opposite direction too. So we don't want to go that way. So did you have a question or thought? I have Yeah. Uh, um, it's interesting to me that spiritual life connected with God's fellowship. Yeah. Connected with the valuing of human capital and property value. Yeah. And that those things are related together. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that God chose this to develop his people because in thinking the ideas of amortization and things like that come right out of what you're talking about. The Jewish people were in the forefront of pre-banking into Western civilization. Yeah. And so you have God doing all different things with this one approach. Yeah. Creating the whole society. That's right. About money and banking and spirituality. Yep, yeah. yeah. And we very much see that our, our spiritual life is not something completely separate from the physical life God has given us. He's made us physical, spiritual beings, and that comes out in every aspect of our lives, and you see that with the Israelites, right? You see how there's these connections being made um, between what does it mean to worship the Lord, and how does that affect property and other things that we would think about, right? We, we see it all over the place. Yeah. One more thing. Yeah. I'm a little slow, but, you know, it's interesting that in chapter 26 it ends with repentance. Mm. And so there's no time where it's too late to repent. Yep, we see call it, yeah. And the whole people after repentance are available to make jobs. <laughs> when I'm in fellowship throughout my life, we're coming back. Yeah. The vow is what yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. So we see its connection to repentance. Yep. Good. Okay. So they they um, <clears throat> they can make a, a rash vow, uh, vowers remorse. Another thing we can see people tempted to do. Look at verse twenty six. But a firstborn of animals, which uh, as the firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. You'll remember earlier, well, you, you may not remember, but the firstborn belonged to the Lord right out of the gate, right? The firstborn of any animal, uh, things like that, they're already dedicated to the Lord. So this essentially is saying, look, you can't claim that twice. You don't get a double deduction for that, right? Um, you, you, you may be tempted to appear more uh, generous than you are, because you're going to, I'm going to make this a vow to the Lord. Well, if it already belongs to the Lord, it already belongs to the Lord. You can't double dedicate it to make yourself like look better, like you just gave a free will vow offering. No, this was like a compulsory, it belongs to the Lord. You're just acknowledging it belongs to the Lord, right? Um, third, another temptation is thinking that we can redeem or buy back things that must be devoted to destruction. Uh, I think here, and in, in one, one thing we would have would be the example of, it uh, doesn't go into this example here, but a murderer being sentenced to death. You cannot redeem their life. If, if there has been a judicial sentence rendered, there's not a... What do I need to pay to get them out of that? No, life for life, right? That, that is the biblical uh, ideal there. Um, and also, when they go into the land of the Canaanites, it doesn't directly address this here, but they're going to be, because the word used in this section, this is, uh, by the way, this is verses 28 through 29, it's the idea of under the ban, uh, devoted to destruction. And when you go into the book of Joshua, you see that over and over again. So that's with the Canaanites. When you go in there, and God says, you're to devote all this to destruction. You're not to, you're not to profit from all their stuff because I want it to be clear that I, the Lord, blessed you. You didn't get blessing from these Canaanites. So you can't redeem that. If the Lord says devoted to destruction, it's devoted to destruction, right? You can't redeem it. Um, 
The final area is the tithe, verses 30 through 33. They were to give 10% of their produce to the Lord. If they want to redeem that, they have to add one-fifth to their valuation to get it back. So I think the message in this section really is about walking with God and the idea that um, these, these vow offerings show a idea that we are living sacrifices, that all that we have belongs to the Lord. And I think that's, that's probably why we end on this section because it mirrors chapters one through seven related to sacrifices. And it, very, uh, it does a very, it's, a, it's the one offering that really shows something of directly where a person's heart would be with the Lord. And the fact that they really value that the Lord is among them and they're walking with God. Uh, so we read the last verse of Leviticus, verse 34. These are the commandments that the, Lord has command, that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So let's summarize Leviticus as a whole and how it fits in here because we see these are the commandments the Lord gave. What is the purpose of these commandments? You remember he gives commandments about sacrifices, about the priests and the, those who would represent the people before God, uh, holy days, the day of atonement and how we need a covering of sin. Um, so Leviticus essentially then is answering how can a holy God be among an unholy people and not destroy them and actually bless them instead of destroying them? How, how does that work? And the reason I say that that's what's been going on is, is, and this is somewhat review, but I think it's good to end this way. Back in Exodus, in fact, you can hold your hand in Leviticus and go back to Exodus 40, verse 34. You'll remember it ended this way. <clears throat> so they build this tabernacle. God tells them to build the tabernacle. That's the place where God is going to dwell among his people in a special blessing way, right? It's not God's house like he, poor God, he needed a house, right? No, he, he, he dwell, the heavens can't contain him. He's so vast. But he is going to dwell among his people in a blessing way, showing something of a return to this Garden of Eden-like life. So they build it, and then at the end of Exodus, where after they get done building it, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is great news. They want the glory of God among them. And the glory of God is filling the tabernacle. Right? Success. Verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So two things are probably going on there. One is we're just, we're seeing something of the magnitude of God's glory. But we're also being told a theological point. You can't go before this glory of God without being destroyed. Moses can't go in there. So success, but not really yet. We solve a problem. So Leviticus enters to solve that problem. And um, the people are not going to enter based on their own ingenuity. We saw that with Nadab and Abihu, right? They bring strange fire and they get destroyed. God is going to be the one that's got to tell them how they're going to enter his presence. And so God, that's what Leviticus is telling them. This is how you're going to enter my presence. This is how you're going to live among my tabernacle and not be destroyed. Look at uh, Leviticus 17.11. All these sacrifices are a gift from God. It is grace to his people. Look at verse 11, Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So he's talking about sacrifices. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the goal of atonement then is that the people will be holy. They'll be set apart to God. They'll be cleansed. They won't have the stench of death. Remember we talked about how unclean is this idea of it's connected to death. And in God's presence, there will be no death ultimately, right? So the people have to be clean. They certainly cannot go in. Now they're going to get unclean. That's going to happen. That's a normal part of their daily life, but they're not going to be able to go in to the tabernacle unclean, especially the priests, right? Because they're going to be able to go further into the tabernacle. And so they have all these rules about cleanliness and uncleanliness because of that. Um, so 
the sacrifice system is going to deal with that. So, so what we could say then, we've said this several times, but the theme of Leviticus is the holiness of God and the fact that his people must be holy. That's really the theme. That's not the goal of Leviticus, though. I mean, it is. But the goal is that they would be holy, set apart to God, so that they could experience God's presence. In other words, God is the point of Leviticus. The presence of God is the point of the whole Bible. That, that a people can dwell in, in the happy presence of God. I mean, go read the uh, Revelation and see what it's like to be in the presence of God. Meditate on that. Right? There will be no need of sun because God will be in the midst of this city that he has. So next time you're out on a walk on a cool day and you feel the sun on your skin, meditate on heaven. Think about, God, as much as I'm enjoying this warm sunshine on my face right now, how much better is it going to be to enjoy the warmth of your presence? I mean, you told me it's like light. It's like a sunbeam. That's intended to stir my affections for you. Not just my mind, but from my mind to my heart, right? That, that I, man, I enjoy, on a cool day, I enjoy the warmth of the sun on my face. How much more will I enjoy your presence? So we need to think that way. Um, so that's the point. Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. God's presence. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So the point is that God would be able to dwell among his people. Now that's in the promises section. Now we also know that they're not going to do a good job of that. So we're going to have to talk in a second about um, how Leviticus fits in the storyline of the Bible. Because the people are going to fail to live by the, the, what God has set up in Leviticus. Um, <clears throat> but before we jump to that, Numbers 1, verse 1. So the next book in the, in the Pentateuch, right after Leviticus. So we have this problem. The people can't enter. Even Moses, the, the man of God, cannot enter into the tabernacle. Leviticus comes in, I, I, and what I'm saying is Leviticus is answering that question. It ultimately hinges on the Day of Atonement, I think. That's why I think... Leviticus 16 is the center of the book and the Pentateuch. And then we get to Numbers 1.1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So we haven't really left. They're still in the same place. They're in Sinai. In, in the tent of meeting. So where is he now? In the tent of meeting. Leviticus has opened the way up so that a representative can now go into the tent of meeting. That's big. That's huge. Okay, so that's the point of Leviticus um, where it's at is, is how, do we, how do we live in God's presence? How does it point forward in the storyline? Let's talk about a couple things that we see pointing forward in the storyline. Uh, they're not going to keep the law that they should keep. Uh, they're, they're not going to do well. I mean, some of them will, but you know, many will not. And it'll go, it'll go through waves, right, where they do, they do well in terms of believing and then acting on that belief in times where they won't. Um, so this is a major a moment in redemptive history, the book of Leviticus is, but it's not the final moment. And you know that because you have more pages in your Bible, right? So spoiler alert, um, there's more going on there. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for um, an offspring of the line that was promised back in Genesis 3, who's going to come and crush the serpent and deal with sin and death. Uh, we're waiting for a new Adam who will come and perfectly represent the people, right? We, we get this priesthood that's going to represent the people, but they're still sinful, we need a new Adam who can perfectly represent us, perfectly obey for us the law of God, the righteousness of God. And we need a final sacrifice who will pay for all of our sins. So Leviticus, let me give you these three glimpses of how it points ahead. Leviticus, Leviticus uh, 8 through 10 points to the fact that we need a priest, right? We need a perfect high priest. Hebrews 
If you want to turn to Hebrews, I'm going to look at a couple passages in there, so it's up to you, but I mean, that could be helpful. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Leviticus points ahead to a final faithful high priest. Hebrews 4, verse 14, so near the end of your Bible. Since then, we have a great high priest. So this comes after the new covenant, right? Jesus has come. Uh, the one who was promised back in Genesis 3 has come. He's lived. He's died. He rose again. And this is what we read about him. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Um, you can also look in Hebrews 8, and you can see some things going on there about the high priest. Uh, Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The tabernacle, the priesthood, it's all pointing to Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand in what this pictured, he's sitting in the reality of that, in the throne room of God. He's our high priest. Um, okay, so we need a perfect high priest. Jesus is the one this is pointing to. Leviticus 11 through 15 points to our need to be made clean, which I, I would say is really picturing we need to be transferred from the realm of death into the realm of life. That's what uncleanness is telling us and cleanness is telling us. We need to be transferred from that. Um, you'll remember uncleanness is not equated with sin all the time. It can be. It can be a result of sin, but not every time is it equated with sin. But now it's equated with the effects of sin, though. Because we live in a fallen world, we have uncleanness. We have things that picture death. Things that remind us that everything is not right. And so we can't just, in, in Leviticus, you couldn't just walk into God's place that way, right? Um, well, what do you have the priest doing in Leviticus? Do they make people clean? Does a priest make someone clean in the book of Leviticus? Absolutely not. What, what is their job related to uncleanness? They identify it. They see if they're unclean or clean, right? They can make that identification. And, th and that was kind of like a, um, a safety net, wasn't it? Do not approach the Lord in your uncleanness, lest you die. I mean, that was a, that was a, a cadence in Leviticus, lest you die, lest they die, right? Um, okay, so they can't make them clean. Okay, we get to the Gospels. Jesus, who's going to be the great high priest, touches who? The leper. Is a leper clean or unclean? Not the animal, right? The person who has leprosy. Unclean. What happens when he touches the leper? He is made clean. He is healed and made clean. Right? You remember in Mark chapter uh, 5. The, uh, we don't have time to read this, but it would be interesting to read. But Mark chapter 5, this, this woman has a discharge of blood for, I think it's 12 years or something. She is unclean. That pictures something. Now, she's not in sin because of that. It just pictures death. It's a reminder of that. So there's some form of exclusion from her full participation among the people of God because of that. That's a sad thing. That's only, it's only true in a broken world, right? And, and so that's there. What happens? She touches Jesus, and she is healed, and then Jesus says, who touched me? And what do the disciples say? Lord, there's like 150 people around you. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus says, no, I want it. who touched me, Right? Why does he say that? Now, how does she respond, first of all? She's scared. She doesn't want to be called out in front of all these people. Why? She's unclean. And she just touched Jesus. What should have happened? Jesus should have become unclean. 
If you come in contact with the unclean, you are ceremonially unclean for a period of time. She had the audacity to touch Jesus. But what happened? He's not made unclean. She's made clean. This is, you see what I'm saying? Jesus, all this uncleanness stuff is pointing to Jesus, the one priest who actually will make people clean. And that's true for us in our uncleanness as well, right? That the Lord does that for us. Leviticus 16 points to the atonement of our sins. We need final and full atonement. Jesus does that. Hebrews 13, 12 Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, to set us apart, sanctify the people through his own blood. All right, let's wrap this up. So those are three, three ways it points ahead in the storyline. How does Leviticus apply to us? Because you'll recall we are not under the law, right? Uh, Hebrews 8, 13. <clears throat> in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. You are not under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He makes it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Uh, Galatians, if you go look at Galatians, I think I gave you the verses here. I was reading this the, uh, yesterday in my, my time in the Word. And I was just struck in Galatians three fifteen through 29, talking about the old covenant. It keeps saying, he gave us the old covenant until, 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 until. What does until apply, uh, imply? except for there is a day when you are not under it. And what he's saying is this is the day. We are not under this covenant, right? Don't go back to that covenant. Don't think you have to be circumcised because you're, under the, you're not under the old covenant. You can, you can do some, I mean, you can observe holy days. You can do all that. That's fine. But don't think that you're under the covenant where you have to do that. You're not. You're under the new covenant. There's something new about the new covenant, right? Okay, so we're not under it, but how does it apply to us? Romans 15, 14, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction um, so that we might have uh, encouragement and hope and endurance, right? So that was a paraphrase, but Romans 15, 14. God gave it to us for a reason. It's not meaningless just because you're not under the old covenant does not mean it's worthless. So two ways it's very meaningful. Number one, we've already reviewed it. I'm not gonna go back and do it. It points to Jesus and the new covenant, so what I would say is, what should you do based on Leviticus? Go back and read Hebrews and just revel in what God has done for us through his son Christ. As you think about Leviticus and everything that God laid out there, how that all was laying the groundwork for what Jesus would do. The wisdom of God in the way he organized our salvation. The grace of God in the Savior he provided, right? Um, so we ought to never grow tired of thinking much about our Savior, the second thing we can do is be reminded that we must walk in holiness. We are cleansed because of the work of Jesus, and therefore we are set apart to God. And so by faith, what do we do? We desire to live like a people set apart to God. So 1 Peter 1, 15, and a couple verses after that says, But as, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Where does that come from? Leviticus. That's a quote from Leviticus, right? You shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Think about the vow offerings even. It's, it's, it's the, the, that was a picture. That wasn't the full reality, Right. What were, we, what were you reconciled with? But with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. So again, we're reminded of both those realities. What does Leviticus point us to? What Christ has done to redeem us. And secondly, be holy because God is holy. 
He called you out of darkness into light, right? That is first Peter. So that's, that's what I think we should take from the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this book that you've given us. Um, the good book you gave for your people in the Old Testament and even for our instruction, our encouragement, and our hope as new covenant believers. We thank you for Christ and for what you've done through him and, and continue to do in our lives uh, through his work. And we pray that we'd be a holy people, that we would be set apart, God, that um, we would not seek to, to live um, for selfish ambition, but we would vow ourselves fully to you and that you would empower us and that when we fail, we'd repent and that you would continually offer us the grace that we need and that we would revel in your goodness towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.